Good morning. Welcome back to Women in the Word. I'm glad to be here, and I know from your praises that you're glad to be here also. You know, um, it was so fun last week talking about Israel's future glory, wasn't it? It was, uh, it was just a, a great time. But um, unfortunately, Ellen Schaefer's father is Jewish, and so now Ellen thinks... As Gentiles, we're all going to be plowing her fields. So that's all she's uh, that's all she's talked to me about this week is how she's making a list for when I'm there plowing Ellen's field. So um, just be expecting that. Just be expecting that. I have to share with you, uh, I had a hospital experience recently. I have an older sister, and she came to town. Uh, for a visit and unfortunately while she was here she fell and broke her hip and so then she was in the hospital here for a little over a week and had to have surgery and I had forgotten I got to spend a lot of time at the hospital with she and her husband and I had forgotten um, how much time you spend waiting for doctors when you're in the hospital. Now, um, as a former nurse, I used to be quite familiar with that. You're always waiting for them to call you back, always waiting to come and see the patient, always waiting for them to get there and deliver uh, the baby. But I'd kind of forgotten about it. And let me say, if you're a doctor, if you have a family member that's a doctor, I do too. I totally love doctors. I'm not, um, I understand how the system works. They are busy and uh, they have to prioritize. But there was one day when my brother-in-law and I had spent the entire day waiting for the doctor uh, to be able to come and do her surgery. And it was, it was 7.30 that night before the poor guy finally got there uh, to do the surgery. And so we had a lot of time to sit and wait together. And I was uh, working on Isaiah while we were waiting. And so he said, hey, I have a story for you after we had drunk the hospital coffee until we couldn't stand it, you know, anymore. He said, um, there was a man that died and went to heaven. And when he got to heaven, there was a long line waiting to get in. And so he stood in that line and he stood there and he stood there. Um, and then finally, while he was standing there, this older man with a white beard, uh, had a white coat on and a stethoscope around his neck, bypassed the line, went totally up to the gate and nodded at the angel and went right in. Well, the guy that had been waiting for so long um, tapped the guy in front of him on the shoulder and said, who is that guy? Why didn't he have to wait? And the guy kind of rolled his eyes and said, oh, that's God. He thinks he's a doctor. I couldn't resist after my hospital experience of waiting, of sharing that with you. Um, And, you know, we're going to look at three more chapters of um, Isaiah today. And we're going to discover that our God does not really have any identity crisis. He doesn't think he's a doctor. He knows exactly who he is. In fact, throughout the scriptures, uh, he has portrayed himself the same way. Moses knows exactly who Israel's God is. He said this, it's on your verse sheet, about Israel's God. As they were waiting to go into the promised land, Deuteronomy 7, 9. He says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. 
keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his command. And it is God's faithfulness as bookends on Israel's unfaithfulness that we are going to take a look at this morning in these three chapters of Isaiah. So turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 63, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground." You know, this is probably one of the most dramatic passages um, in all of the scriptures as Isaiah talks about the destruction of Israel's enemies. You know, Isaiah speaks like he's a watchman standing there watching the warrior coming to Israel from the direction of Edom and its capital, Basra. Now, Edom has been an enemy of Israel's, uh, a perennial perennial enemy of Israel, and certainly, as far as Isaiah and near future prophecy is concerned, a primary prophecy, Edom is under God's wrath as Israel's enemy. Look at Malachi 1.4 on your verse sheet. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. But even more significant than the primary prophecy of Edom's destruction here is the defeat once for all of Israel's enemies when the Lord comes to end the tribulation at his second coming and usher in the millennial kingdom. This prophecy is also the far future prophecy. And these are the nations that are going to be judged and defeated at the second coming of Christ at the battle of Armageddon. You know, in verse 1, I think you looked at in your homework some great descriptions of the Lord Jesus coming to Israel from the battle of Armageddon. It says his garments are stained like someone who has been treading grapes in the wine press, but these are not grape stains. These are the stains of the blood of the Savior's enemies. And that is the blood of the unbelievers who have lived through the great tribulation, and yet they remain defiant, they remained blind, they remained unwilling to take the sacrifice that the Savior had made so graciously for them on the cross. They've come all the way through the tribulation, and they still have not been willing to bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They are defiant, blind, and refusing to get to accept the Savior's gifts. Because of that, um, they're going to pay the ultimate price. We also see in this verse that he's robed in splendor. 
and coming forward in great strength and great power. He's a majestic warrior, strong and powerful. He's wearing battle dress that is actually fit for a king. Isaiah describes that king um, back in chapter 9. Let's look at on your verse sheet, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and his kingdom, over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord will usher in the millennial kingdom where the king of kings and the prince of peace will sit on David's throne. And that's what has happened here. The zeal of the Lord is ushering in the millennial kingdom. And the divine warrior finishes the final battle and he heads towards Jerusalem. We see another characteristic of the Savior in verse 1, and he identifies himself as someone who speaks. And I love this because throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, this is an outstanding characteristic of a faithful God, of a faithful God that speaks faithfully to his people to reveal himself so that they will understand who he is. And when Isaiah poses the question here, who is this? It is the Savior himself. Who answers the living word of God, who speaks and reveals that he has come to usher in the millennial kingdom. And he replies that he is mighty to save. Mighty to save. I have to I asked Jennifer that if we could sing that this morning because I so love how he describes himself in these verses. Now there's a second question um, described in verse two, and that is why are the Savior's crows stained? as if he'd been treading grapes. And the Savior actually gives us his reply in verses 3 through 6. And um, we learn three things in that reply. And the first one is, we learn that the day of God's vengeance has arrived. It's here. Although we see evidence of God's great mercy throughout the scriptures and throughout Isaiah, actually, there is a day. There is a day that is coming and it's described graphically in these verses. It's talked about other, way, other places in Isaiah. I think he mentions it back in Isaiah 34. I think it's verse 8. He mentions the day of God's vengeance. And that day when it arrives is going to be the day when those who have refused to accept God's mercy are going to pay the ultimate cost that we see here in these verses. And it is a fact, and it's a fact that's going to become a reality when Jesus brings the day of God's vengeance to end the tribulation. But the second thing we see here is that the work of salvation and judgment on the nations is one that Jesus is going to carry out alone. You know, ironically, as I was thinking about Easter this week, um, Jesus bore the sins of the world alone during his first advent. Uh, There was no one else in the world that was out sin, so there was no one else that could be the atoning sacrifice for sin. So because of that, not the men on either side of him at the cross, not the disciples who loved him, not his family who raised him, not Israel who was waiting for him, no one... um, stepped up and bore the sins with him. Jesus bore the sins of the world alone and became the perfect atonement for sin. And now we see in these verses that that Savior who has alone been the atoning sacrifice for our sin 
is going to give to those who have refused to accept that sacrifice their due on the day of vengeance. And alone, he will judge them and require of them their own blood because they would not accept his blood on the cross. He who was perceived as weak and deserted on the cross. Do you remember the taunting that um, the soldiers did for him? You can't come down. You can't save yourself. Um, now displays the power that he's always had. He had it when he hung on the cross. Um, and now he is able to display it as he defeats the nations and his enemies. And he strides with his mighty power to save towards Israel. And the third thing we see here in um, Jesus' uh, reply in verses 2 through 6 is that he explains that along with judgment for his enemies, he's com- his coming is going to bring redemption and the ultimate salvation that Israel has been waiting for. You know, the day of vengeance is here, he says in these verses, but he also says the, uh, the day of vengeance is here, but the year of redemption is also here. You know, his bloody victories over his enemies that we see here are not the result of someone that's out of control, that has lost their temper and just uh, run amok and killed people. The day of vengeance is part of God's plan for salvation. Um, We can look back to the prophecies throughout Isaiah, and even if we went nowhere else in the scripture, we can see that the work of God's redemption, which includes his judgment, And his salvation was planned. Um, Isaiah prophesied redemption would occur at Jesus' first advent. Look at Isaiah 53 on your verse sheet. 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. You know, the definition of faithfulness is someone who is steady in allegiance reliable, true to um, fact or standard, unwavering in the truth of that standard. And you know, throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, God has talked about the redemption of his people. He begins in Genesis 3, actually, and he ends at Revelation 22. He has been steady and reliable and unwavering in providing for salvation and judgment throughout the scriptures. And as Jesus strides away from the battle of Armageddon and heads towards the promised land to establish the millennial kingdom, we not only see his mighty power to save and to accomplish that, but I think we see his faithfulness is mighty to save also. His faithfulness is mighty to save. Israel's God has never stopped marching the world towards redemption and salvation. Israel's God has been perfectly reliable in not only promising salvation, but bringing it about, as we see in these six verses. Um, He is true to the standard of who he is, a God with a plan for salvation. He's faithful. He's never been anything less. And because of that, because of that faithfulness, Israel can be sure that he will come back to save his people. Um, you know, our application, I think, in all of this, in these verses, as we look at Jesus coming again in his second advent to save Israel uh, and to judge the nations. And I want us to look this week, just because we are walking towards um, Easter Sunday, I want to look at it in light of the cross. 
um, I think our application can be nothing less than what Isaiah really wanted. God wanted uh, through Isaiah for the people of Israel to get when he wrote this prophecy about the Lord's return. He wanted Israel to remember their God is steady and reliable and true to his standards, um, true to his promises. And the cross, I think, as we look at the cross this Easter weekend, is the ultimate example of God's faithfulness to his people as he carries out his plan of salvation. You know, this Easter, when you um, spend time worshiping and contemplating the cross, um, I don't know what that's going to bubble up in your own spiritual life, but I'd love for you to tuck away just to contemplate for a moment what the cross says to you about God's faithfulness in your life. Okay, now we have a dramatic break here, beginning in verse 7, from Israel's deliverance by the Savior, and he moves from that dramatic passage of deliverance to a prayer on Israel's behalf. Now, it's Isaiah speaking here on behalf of Israel. Uh, It's kind of like Israel personified, and Isaiah is speaking it. And we have a dramatic back and forth from verse 7 clear through the rest of chapter 63, all of 64. Um, And in his prayer, we have Isaiah remembering God's faithfulness and Israel begging and pleading for God's faithfulness. Um, This morning, I want us to look at this prayer of Isaiah's to gain wisdom about our own journey of faithfulness and to see how it impacts our conversations with God as his faithful people. So let's read verses 7 through 9 together in chapter 63. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yet the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, Surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. It It's true that God has not only been faithful to Israel, but in that faithfulness, he's been abundant in his blessings. In fact, in verse 8, Israel remembers that God has elected them as his true son. And not because of anything that Israel had done to deserve that. It was simply because God, in his faithfulness, selected Abraham and then chose to bless all of Abraham's descendants. That was the only reason Israel was getting God's special favor, is because God had selected Abraham and chosen to bless his descendants. And because of that, God had a right to expect that the people he had chosen and blessed were going to respond to him with love and faithfulness of their own. As a result of that relationship between a faithful God and the people he's blessed, um, God would be their savior, it tells us in these verses. Now, the psalmist talks about the relationship that Israel's had between their faithful God and his chosen people in Psalm 100. Verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep 
of his pasture. And that is who Israel has been simply because of God's faithfulness and favor in their life. God has been their God and they have been his chosen people, the sheep of his pasture. You know, there are other places in this prayer. We're not going to look at all of them where Isaiah recounts God's um, faithfulness to them. Uh, Verses 11 through 14, you may want to go back and look at that later. But Isaiah there talks about Israel's deliverance from Egypt as God parted the Red Sea and he he guided his people into freedom and release from captivity. And Isaiah weaves throughout his prayer, he weaves remembering who God is, a faithful, loving, powerful God to his chosen people. along with his petitions and his confession. And you know, he's not recounting God's faithfulness to God as he prays because um, he's trying to remind God of who he is. I mean, God certainly knows who he is. He doesn't need Isaiah to remind him. He's he's recounting God's faithfulness um, as he prays as a reminder to himself and the people Israel of who God is. It's a great principle for us to remember in our prayer life also. You may already have that as a routine part of your prayer life. But I have to share with you that during my most difficult moments in life, when I sit down to pour my heart out to God and to really beg and plead with him for his mercy or for him to intervene in some situation that I'm concerned about, if I don't start with praise remembering who God is. And I have some passages that are marked in my Bible, some places I always go back to where God talks about who he is and his great power. If I don't start with that and then weave it throughout my prayer again, my faith, which is what should fuel my prayers, um, usually ends up being fear and panic. And I go to God um, Um, Not thinking about who he is, but thinking about what my circumstances are. Praising God and remembering who he is not only humbles me, but it keeps my heart in the right place as I open my conversation with him. And as we continue to converse along the way, I think it's a great principle that Isaiah gives us here. The next thing that we see in Isaiah's prayer as he speaks for Israel is that they don't hold back from reminding God of their pitiful condition. They're honest with God. Um, Look at chapter 63, verses 15, and, and then verse 18. Let me read that with you. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. And then verse 18, drop down a little further. For a little while... For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. And then move on down to chapter 64 and look at verses 10 and 11. Isaiah says for Israel, Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert and Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasure lies in, in uh, ruins. Now, everyone that has children knows how dramatic they can be when they want our pity. 
you know. It's just an expression, you know, how terrible my life is. Um, And I was reminded this week that even my little chihuahua, even my little chihuahua can put on the most uh, pitiful display when I ask her to leave the sofa and to go outside like a real dog. And um, this week it was raining a little bit, and so I said, hey, it's, it's time for you to go outside. And I was writing this, and I totally watched her, and um, she just, and she's normally real friendly and perky, and she just put her head down and trudged to the door. And then right when she got to the door, she turned back to me for one more look of how terrible it was going to be to step one foot outside. Um, yeah. Um, But even my little chihuahua is no match for Israel here. Um, Isaiah says for the nation, woe is us, woe is us. You used to have tenderness and compassion for us, but now you're holding it back. Everything that we have, our cities, our temple, everything that we have has been burned. Woe is us, God. Now, we have to remember that Isaiah is writing to the future exiles of the Babylonian captivity. And um, it's true, Babylon did destroy everything. They did burn down the temple. Uh, These are actually great verses here. This is just a little aside. These are great verses here, particularly verse 18, that points to the prophetic ministry of Isaiah to the future exiles of Babylon because he wrote these verses a hundred years before the captivity even occurred. So as he um, calls out for Israel in pity that everything has been burned, um, it hasn't even happened yet. It hasn't even happened yet. But you know what's encouraging to me about these discouraging, pitiful verses that Isaiah weaves throughout his prayer is that it reveals God's faithful love to Israel because he allows them to show their discouragement to him. He allows them to talk about their pain openly to him. You know, who do we moan and groan to and get real pitiful with in our life? We only do it with those people that we feel pretty secure in our relationship with them. If you passed an acquaintance in the hall this morning and they said, hey, how are you? You, no matter what is going on in your life, probably said, oh, great, you know, and went on. But if you saw your best friend this morning and you've got a struggle or something you're feeling pitiful about and she said, okay, how's it going? You just told her, didn't you? And you didn't worry about the fact that she um, might not be your best friend anymore. She loves you and she is willing, she's willing to hear your moaning and your pity because she loves you. Israel knows God's faithfulness is going to allow them to whine and to moan. In fact, they're pretty bold in their uh, whining and moaning. Look at chapter 63, verse 17 with me. They say, Why, O Lord, do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Um, You know, they continue their pity potty throughout this prayer. And right here, it appears that they're presenting God as the direct cause of their sin. And, you know, it is true that God has allowed um, for this um, period of time in the world. He does allow sin in the world. He's given us free will and he allows us to choose sin if that is our choice. But God does not cause them to sin or us to sin. Look at James 1, 13 on your verse sheet. 
When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. It's our sin nature, ladies, that causes us to sin, that certainly caused Israel to rebel. It is not God. But what Isaiah for Israel means here is in an Old Testament judicial sense. God, as the potter who formed the clay, they feel could be held responsible for Israel's hardened heart. Much like how in our day... um, The owner of a car is held responsible if you loan your car to someone today or maybe you have a teenager or whatever and they drive your car and they cause an accident. Now, it wasn't you driving. In fact, you weren't even there. You didn't do a thing. But um, as the owner of the car, in a judicial sense, you could be held responsible, uh, bear responsibility for what the vehicle does. Because... Israel is God's chosen people, um, they're trying to place responsibility on God here, really, I think, for the purpose of eliciting his pity. Um, Look what you made us do. You know, we've heard that from um, our kids all of our life. Look what you made us do. They're trying to elicit God's pity by using this Old Testament judicial sense here that he's ultimately responsible for them. But, you know, even as Isaiah laments and begs for God's pity here, all of them, Isaiah, Israel, God, they all know that there really is an elephant in the room. They know that Israel has chosen to sin, and because of that, their faithful God has judged them and given them over to the consequences of their sin. The problem is not, uh, is Israel's unfaithfulness. It is not God's problem. It is Israel's unfaithfulness. So let's look at Isaiah's third element of the prayer on behalf of Israel, and that is confession, admitting their unfaithfulness. Look at chapter 63, verse 10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Isaiah admits Israel's unfaithfulness here, which he openly describes as rebellion. And the result is that the God who has loved them and fought for them as a nation has now had to fight against them because of their rebellion. You know, throughout scriptures, God consistently, faithfully addresses sin and deals with sin the exact same way. A faithful God addresses sin and deals with it the exact same way throughout the scriptures. He doesn't do it one way one time and one way another. And that's a lesson. God's judgment is a lesson that Israel has had a very hard time learning about their faithful God. You know, an interesting phrase used here by Isaiah in um, verse 10 is grieved his Holy Spirit. And you know, it's interesting. This is the only time this phrase is used in the entire Old Testament. But it actually gives us some great insight into what that phrase means. It's used a couple of times in the New Testament. Um, We not only offend God's holiness when we rebel against him, but we offend his love. We offend his love, which he's offered to us freely. Um, And when we offend his love, it causes him pain and hurt and grieves his Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians 4, 29. 
on your verse sheet. But do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along, along with every other form of malice. Sin in any form, including Israel's rebellion and unfaithfulness, just like the sin that um, Paul mentions here in Ephesians, causes God pain. It offends his love for us and it offends his sense of holiness and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, Isaiah also confesses Israel's unfaithfulness in chapter 64, verses 5 through 7. He says, You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who died in a concentration camp in World War II. And he said this about confession. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. But the expressed, acknowledged sin loses all its power. Israel, in these verses, um, admits that their sins have so hopelessly polluted them that they have even stopped seeking God. They have stopped attempting to pray or trying to find him. In fact, they even wonder here, is it hopeless? Is there anything that we can do to be saved? But if you read on those scriptures, you can see the truth of what Bonhoeffer said here about confessions. Because Israel's prayer, immediately following uh, where they bring their sins to light here, in this prayer they begin, after their confession, to appeal to God for his help. You know, it's true that sin does want to capture us and to keep us in the darkness and keep us from coming into the light because you know what happens when we come into the light we see God's faithfulness in confession we begin to see God's faithfulness and we ask for his help and that's what Israel does in verses 8 and 9 read those with me yet O Lord you are our father we are the clay and you are the potter and we are all the work of your hand do not be angry beyond measure O Lord do not remember our sins forever O look upon us we pray for we are your people they've admitted their sin they've come into the light they're looking for God's faithfulness to rescue them Um, they appeal to God's Uh, as the potter who's taken the inert clay of Israel in their hands and formed it. And they address him as a father, their father, because they know that fathers care about their children and they are merciful and compassionate. As God's chosen people, Israel does appeal to God to look upon them with mercy and put aside the memory of their sin. Um, Israel wants God's faithfulness to bring them salvation. 
You know, there's, um, there was an interesting truth for me in this when I studied this prayer over the last weeks. Even in their unfaithfulness, we can see that Israel still rests in God's faithfulness. Somehow, even though they don't get faithfulness themselves and they're living unfaithfully, they know that doesn't change God's faithfulness. They remember all that he's done for them. They remind him of how pitiful their condition is because they know that he cares for them faithfully. They confess they've grieved him and offended his deep love, but they still turn to him for deliverance because that's what a faithful God does. He delivers his people. And it's a picture for us of a people who haven't even walked in obedience to their faithful God but his faithfulness is so real and so consistent in their lives um, that even in their complete unfaithfulness, they cling to it. They cling to God's faithfulness and they call out to him because they know that a faithful God never moves, never changes, never has a bad day and refuses to answer his phone because he is faithful. He's steady in his allegiance. He um, is true to his standards. Israel knows that even in their unfaithfulness, and they go back to him. You know, and as I thought about this, when I studied this, about how our unfaithfulness does not change God's faithfulness, and certainly that's not a call that we can capriciously be unfaithful and expect um, God not to answer that. But I was reminded, as we look at Easter, of the night of Jesus' arrest in the garden of Gethsemane, you know, he asked his disciples to be faithful and to stay awake and pray with him. And they were unfaithful. They fell asleep. When he was arrested, um, he thought his faithful disciples were there um, going to be by his side. But they were unfaithful, including his friend Peter, who denied him three times. And yet, true to his faithful character, he walked on to the cross despite their unfaithfulness. Thankfully, our faithfulness never, unfaithfulness never changes God's faithfulness. And we can have confidence in that. Israel had confidence in that. And because God is faithful, in chapter 65, he answers Israel's prayer. And so let's read a few verses of that as we finish up. Verses 1 through 3. God says, this is God speaking, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. Okay, now this was probably not the response that Israel was hoping for here. They were hoping for God's faithfulness to bring about their deliverance. And in these verses, God tells them the whole car cold, hard truth. God has faithfully held out his hand to a stubborn people. But instead of taking his hand, they have been unfaithful and they have worshipped every other idol they could get their hands on. In fact, back in chapter 64, we have Israel saying um, that God was hiding his face from them 
God reveals the truth here. God was never hiding from them. He was never hiding from them. In fact, he was pursuing them over and over again. He was calling out to them. Here I am. Here I am. Israel's faithful God never ignored them. But Israel, time and time and again, ignored their faithful God. And because the unfaithful Israelites actually begged God to intervene, and be faithful, he answers that uh, plea in the second half of verse 7. Look down with me to the second half of verse 7, where it says, Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their formal deeds. You know, they have refused to give their hearts to him, and they have willingly over and over again given their hearts to worthless idols. And God is going to be faithful here. He is going to be faithful as only a perfect God can be. And he's going to faithfully require of them full payment for their sins. A faithful God can be no less than faithful to his own character, which is holy and perfect. And that includes executing judgment on those who deserve it. In their unfaithfulness, They have misjudged. They have misjudged what God's faithfulness really is. Because he is faithful, because he is faithful, God must execute judgment on Israel when they ask for it. Now, because he is a faithful God, he also knows the hearts of all of his people have not been polluted. So I want to finish up here with verse Um, Let's look at verse 8, and then we're going to read verses 13 and 15 in just a moment. Look at verse 8 in chapter 65. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and men say, don't destroy it, there is yet some good in it. So I will do in behalf of my servants. So will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. You know, the... Israel has the sum total of God's faithfulness right here in these verses um, as he assures the faithful remnant that he is going to preserve him. Um, Not only will he preserve them through the Babylonian captivity, but he is going to preserve them when he comes a second time, that faithful remnant. And this is the bookend of what we looked at when um, we opened up with those six verses. You know, when... Isaiah looked up and saw, saw Jesus marching towards Israel uh, to preserve the faithful remnant and offer the millennial kingdom. It's the fulfillment of his faithfulness here in verse 8 where he promises, promises to faithfully preserve the remnant. Um, God's faithfulness bookends Israel's unfaithfulness um, in these chapters. Okay, real quickly, let's read verses 13 through 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail and brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name to my chosen ones as a curse, but the Sovereign Lord will put you will put you to death, 
but to his servants he will give another name. You know, God's faithful servants, the one he's talking about in verse 8, are going to eat and drink and rejoice when Jesus comes marching from the battle of Armageddon and establishes the millennial kingdom. The unfaithful are going to go hungry and thirsty and shamed. God's faithful servants' hearts will sing for joy on that day when they look up and see Jesus striding towards Israel. The unfaithful will be cursed and will be put to death as become the blood splattered on Jesus' garments. Um, God's blessings are on the faithful and his cursings are on the unfaithful. But you know what the most remarkable thing to me about the faithful is? Not even um, that they are faithful, uh, which is remarkable, but the fact that all they had to do to be faithful servants of God um, is what Israel refused to do earlier in these chapters, in the beginning of chapter 65. Um, All they had to do to be faithful was simply take God's hand when he held it out to them. All they had to do to be faithful was to answer God when he said, Here am I, here am I. You know, it's simple to be faithful when you have a faithful God that pursues you. All you have to do is turn around and take his hand. You know, our application this Easter is exactly the same. Salvation is simple when you have a faithful God. Because Jesus was faithful to go to the cross, what we have to do is pretty simple, ladies. We don't have to get on the cross We don't have to suffer. We don't have to pay one penalty for our sin. Because Jesus was faithful, our God is faithful, all we have to do, all we have to do is confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe with our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Salvation is simple with a faithful God. Pray with me. Lord, we just thank you and bless you that you who you are, that you are a faithful God. And Father, I just ask that as your people, you would um, continue to lead us and guide us in faithfulness, that you would protect us and um, guard us from unfaithfulness in our lives. And Father, I just pray for our opportunity to worship you this Easter Sunday that we would look at the cross and we would see your faithfulness. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.